Making a list who's coming Sunday morning, Christmas Eve, and who claps loud for me. All right, good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19 as we continue our study through this gospel. Matthew 19, and we're looking today at Jesus' teaching on divorce. So if you're taking notes, our sermon title is Jesus and Divorce. And uh, we've, we've kind of paused here and are hovering over this passage for a number of weeks now. Uh, we set Jesus in marriage, now this is Jesus in divorce, so the next week we'll do Jesus and singleness. At the uh, very end of this gospel, right after his resurrection, we're told Jesus gathered his disciples and commanded them, Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So teaching them to observe all that I have taught you, Jesus is saying. And so part of the job of your pastors is to teach you all that Jesus taught. We're to teach you to observe all that Jesus commanded. And this includes his teaching uh, teachings on difficult and unpopular topics like this one, like divorce. Uh, no one wants to listen to a sermon on divorce, right? Like, I, I don't imagine anyone's, get, you know, saw the email, whoopee, it's a divorce sermon today. Uh, it's just the encouragement I was hoping for. <clears throat> so, uh, we, you know, we don't think that we need to listen to sermons on divorce very often, but uh, we do need to. Um, we do need to because Jesus says we need to. Uh, Jesus preached on divorce. In fact, he literally preached on it in the Sermon on the Mount uh, back in Matthew chapter 5. And here he's teaching on it again in chapter 19. So Jesus taught on divorce in his day because it mattered back then and it still matters today. And there isn't a person in this room that hasn't been affected by divorce. At least in some way. It's become so common in our culture uh, they say 50% of marriages will end in divorce, but that's not actually true. Um, that number includes second and third marriages. Uh, the, the, true, the true divorce rate for first-time marriages in our country is about 41%. Uh, it's about 41%. Now, also, you might have heard that the rate of divorce for Christians is the same as the rest of the country, but that's also not true. Uh, that's, not, that's not actually accurate either. If you really dig into the numbers... For people who identify as evangelical Christians, and more importantly, for those who those who say that they attend church regularly, if everyone look at the polls. That's actually how you identify true Christians <laughs> most faithfully: is those who attend church regularly. So, those who attend church regularly, uh, their divorce rate is twenty six percent, so significantly lower than the national average. Committed, I mean, it's just. Fact, right? Fact. Committed Christians have more stable marriages. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's just a fact. But still, divorce is is very common in our country, and it's more common than it used to be, even in the church. And this is at least in part because we have no-fault divorce in our country. We have no-fault divorces now. Begun in 1969 uh, in California, which probably doesn't surprise a lot of us, you know, Coming out of California, but 1969, California, Governor Reagan. One of his biggest mistakes in life, maybe. So sadly, divorce is a lot more common in our day. Pretty much everyone is affected by it, which means this message isn't only relevant, it's a message that we all need to hear, but it also means... There's no way this kind of message isn't personal and very painful for some of you. Some of you have personally felt the heartbreaking pain of divorce. That tearing asunder of lives and of families and of homes. And so I want to preface this message with with two thoughts. Two thoughts in preface. First, God hates divorce. Scripture is very clear on that. God hates divorce, and those of you who have been left behind by divorce, who have been sinned against by divorce, 
I know you hate it too. And I would love to speak words of care and compassion to you, but that's not what this sermon can be today. It can't be that because that's not what this passage is about. What Jesus does here is a warning to everyone who thinks divorce is something trivial. Jesus is warning strongly in our passage against, essentially, no-fault divorces. More than that, he's condemning them. They are outlawed in his kingdom. And so my guess is, even though this is a painful topic for you, uh, more than most, you appreciate saying what needs to be said about divorce. That we need to call things what they are, that we need to confront the divorce culture and cultivate a counterculture in God's church. So that's preface number one. The second thing I want to say is uh, God hates divorce, and the second is God is merciful. God is merciful. He hates divorce, but God is merciful. So if you're an innocent party, um, I want you to hear this. God does not hate you for being divorced. In fact, God's actually been divorced. God's actually been divorced. You can read about it in passages like Jeremiah chapter 3 and elsewhere. For generations, his wife Israel was unfaithful to him. She kept whoring after other gods. And so eventually God put her away. He gave her a certificate of divorce and they were separated for 70 years until in his mercy, God went and won her back. God chased after her and in his mercy forgave her and received her back, reconciled back to her. So God hates divorce, but he's been divorced. He knows what it's like to not be loved, to actually be cheated on. He knows all about the upheaval and the pain, but still he has mercy. God is merciful. And if you're the, if you're the unlawful, if you're the unlawful guilty party of a divorce, but you've repented. God is merciful. He's gracious to you. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. In fact, this is the gospel. This, this is the gospel that all of us have been, all of us, every one of us here today, have been unfaithful to God. We are all spiritual adulterers. Each person in this room You can look around and you can see there's not one person here who has not cheated on God. What was it, John? Multiple offender or something? That's us. Each one of us in this room, we've all cheated on God with other gods, with lesser lovers, and yet in Christ, God has shown mercy to us. He laid on Jesus all our sins and he has dressed us in the virgin white linens of Jesus' own righteousness. So for every sinner today, every sinner here today, there is mercy for you no matter what your sin is. There is forgiveness in Jesus' name. That's the preface. And preview of the end, that's going to be the end as well. But let's jump into our text now. We're looking at Matthew chapter 19. Verses 1 through 9. We're going to look at Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9. Please follow along. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, 
Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. In the course of Jesus' ministry, he's now reaching the height of his popularity. He's, he's hitting the, the pinnacle of his popularity here. And verse 2 tells us that great crowds were following him. So this was the common occurrence now. Great crowds following Jesus. And into the, onto the scene, you know, popping onto the scene once again, are those, are those wicked old Pharisees, to which all God's people you know, hissed and booed. You know, if you don't know the Bible, these are the bad guys. And they're, they're always slinking on the stage to mess things up. And in verse 3 we read, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking him, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So the Pharisees asked Jesus a question, but it's not a sincere question. They're not looking to learn from Jesus his perspective on divorce. The, the intent of their question was hostile. The, the intent of it was to test Jesus. Matthew tells us it was to, it was to trap him, literally. But, but not just in a theological debate. Now, something more was actually going down here. So, uh, something to note. Verse 1 tells us Jesus was traveling through the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And that's significant because it's the area, it's the region where John the Baptist ministered. This is where John the Baptist preached. So this is Herod's territory, and it was Herod who imprisoned and eventually beheaded John over the question, over a debate on, on what? Divorce. The legitimacy of divorce and remarriage. Herod's divorce and remarriage, whether it was lawful or not. So, so this was, to begin with, just dangerous territory for Jesus, because everyone knew he was associated with John. So it's just dangerous to begin with. And now they're making it all the more dangerous because they're introducing in front of a great crowd, so word's going to spread, the topic of divorce. It worked on John. Let's see if we can get Jesus. You see the trap. This is really dangerous. But what does Jesus do? He springs the trap. I mean, he, it's like he walks up and kicks it or something. He, you, you've got a trap. Like you can't trap me. Is Jesus? That's how Jesus. Tra- to, you know, that's how he approaches traps. You can't trap me. <laughs> I trap you. Uh, and so he he leans into the conflict. And I just want to note that here that, because I think some of us need to see this. The risk Jesus took. The risk that he often took, the conflict that he would he would lean into. Uh, we may need to adjust our understanding of Jesus. He was not the original flower child, right? Like wandering the the countryside, preaching love and peace, right? And then they crucified him. Huh? How'd that happen? No, that's not what happened. Jesus did preach love. He did preach peace, but when a bunch of, for example, when a, John 6, when a bunch of freeloaders followed him around and wanted to see how much bread they could get from him, Jesus had no problem turning around, looking in the eyes, and saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood, or you have nothing to do with me. And we're told many left him that day. I mean, can you imagine? Like, Hey, this guy's got bread. This guy's doing miracles. That's great. Let's follow him. He turns around and he's like, eat my flesh. Drink my blood. Or get out. Uh, this is a hard saying, Jesus. <laughs> um, how, about, how about you just make some loaves of bread? <laughs> right? Or in a couple of chapters in, our, in, our, uh, in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 1, we're going to be reading about Jesus making a cord of whips and cleansing the temple. Right? Jesus is kind. Jesus loves everybody. And that's why he makes cords of whips and turns the tables over and calls the keepers of the temple you know, a bunch of robbers. The point is, Jesus didn't always shy away from conflict. He leaned into it when he had to. And in our day of casual commitment, our day of no-fault divorce, we have to be ready to do the same thing. We have to be ready to lean into the conflict that there will be over marriage and divorce. But I want you to keep in mind, what we're especially leaning into is not the fights out there, but the fights in here. Right, We're especially leaning into those who confess to be Christians, those who confess to be Jesus Christ, but then who do not want to uphold their marriage vows. People who call themselves Christians but fail to appreciate 
both the seriousness of marriage and the seriousness of divorce. So, just like Jesus does in our passage, we have to not only cast for for the world and for the church a high view of marriage, but we also have to confront any failure we discern to take divorce seriously. That's what we see Jesus doing here. He, you know, he cast this high view of marriage, which we looked at last week, and, and now we're going to look at him confronting their low view of divorce. So point number one, now the seriousness of divorce. This, number one, the seriousness of ju- divorce. In Jesus' day, Jesus' day it was well known that the Mosaic law, the, the Old Testament law, permitted divorce. Uh, it didn't prescribe divorce, but it permitted it. The issue that was debated, that wasn't debated, what was debated was over the grounds for divorce. On what grounds could you divorce your spouse? On what grounds was it lawful to divorce your wife or your, your spouse? And so the Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Right? That's the emphasis, for any cause. Now, at the time, there were two schools of thought on this, one conservative and the other liberal. You know, so it's just like our day. Nothing's changed. <laughs> Nothing's new under the sun. The conservative school of thought was that divorce was only permitted in cases of sexual indecency, uh, sexual sin. And the liberal school of thought was that anything goes. Anything goes. Uh, literally, you could divorce your wife over her burning your toast. Uh, that was one of the examples they taught. Uh, literally, ruining a meal could do it. Now, the crucial text in this is Deuteronomy 24, and I want to invite you to turn there with me. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Let's take a few minutes. Deuteronomy is the fifth, fifth book in the Bible. A few fun facts while you're turning there. Did you know Deuteronomy was the book Jesus quoted the most from the Old Testament? Did you also know Deuteronomy is the most quoted book in the New Testament? Old Testament book? And did you further know that Deuteronomy was the book most quoted by the founding fathers of our country? Not the most, not the, not the you know, book of the Bible quoted the most, but the book quoted the most by the founders was Deuteronomy. Interesting. Deuteronomy 24, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife, this is verse, beginning verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, If she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found, this is the key phrase, some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife. Then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So this is the key text on divorce in the Old Testament. It's the only place where it's, it's, it's not just described, but actually um, taught on. And there's a couple of things I want to point out to you here. First, notice that this isn't Moses commending or commanding divorce. It's not him commending or commanding divorce. Divorce already existed in Israel. It was already in practice. And so what we have here is Mo- Moses bringing it under control. This is him regulating it because men were returning to their first wives to try and get a second dowry out of them. To try to get more money out of them, essentially. So this law was designated. It was designed to protect women from exploitation. And it restricted the permissibility of divorce to the finding of some indecency. To finding some indecency. So it restricted divorce down to finding some indecency with her. That's the key phrase in verse 1. Because he has found some indecency in her. In Hebrew, the phrase is erwad debar. Erwad debar. Which means Urwa means nakedness, and debar means a word or a matter or a thing. So literally, it was was a matter of nakedness. Unless he finds in her a matter of nakedness or a a thing of nakedness, which in their language wasn't necessarily sexual, but it wasn't strictly, it wasn't strictly referencing sexual sin, but it usually was. 
But it could also just kind of reference, you know, something that was indecent or not wanted, not welcomed. Usually it meant sexual sin, but not always. And so because of that little bit of ambiguity, over time, those two different schools of interpretation arose around this. The conservative school teaching that divorce was permitted in cases of sexual sin, you know, matters of nakedness, um, while the liberal school taught that divorce was permitted literally for, for almost anything. It could be a wife spoiling her husband's dinner, she could burn his breakfast toast, or, you know, it, you know, one teaching was that if he finds a woman fairer than she, uh, that was good enough. So basically the liberal school taught no-fault divorce. What we have today. And in Jesus' day, by Jesus' time, the liberal view was the common view. It was the popular view. It was, it was no-fault divorce. But again, against this view, against this low view of divorce, Jesus taught, and, and here you can turn back to Matthew chapter 19. I hope you kept your finger there. Turn back to Matthew chapter 19. Jesus taught against that low view of divorce. In verses 8 and 9, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Remember, not required it, but permitted it. He allowed it. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, so here's my authoritative word. You want to know what my interpretation of it is? Here it is. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus squarely comes down on the conservative interpretation of Moses. He says the only ground for divorce is sexual immorality. That's the only exception he gives. Although later in the epistles, uh, we're not going to go there today, but Paul allows for a second exception in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is desertion by an unbelieving spouse. So in the Bible, we've got two exceptions uh, permitting divorce. Permitting, not prescribing, divorce. Two alone, uh, adultery and abandonment. Adultery and abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. If you want to read more about I can't go into a lot of details about divorce. There are whole books written on it. But if you want to read a little bit more about it, uh, I've got an article back in the book, uh, in the bookshelf, uh, bookstore area on this topic taken from the ESV Study Bible. Please help yourself on that. But the point to get is that Jesus narrowed all the possibilities for divorce down to just one situation. And Paul later, with the church growing, added a second, and we've got two, and that's it, adultery and abandonment. Beyond these two exceptions, we must not, this is the word from God, essentially, we must not conform to this world of casual commitment that's all around us. We must not look for different ways to get out of our marriage. Rather, we are to deny ourselves, we are to deny selfish impulses, and instead serve our spouse and glorify God in and through our marriage until death do us part. Jesus' point in limiting the grounds for divorce and then and then never even requiring it even where he limits it. It's limited to one, but it's not required for that one. It doesn't have to be a divorce. Divorce doesn't have to be. All that is for Jesus to underline the seriousness of divorce. And to, you know, enumerate on this a little bit more, I want to give you five reasons, five reasons here why divorce is so serious not exhaustive list but just to give you an idea one divorce is serious because it denies the vows we took it denies the vow when you and i stood before a pastor and were married uh or if you're not married and one day you're going to stand before me and and i'm going to preside over it no one's going to be promising until divorce does us part until divorce do us part what do we promise until death do us part. That is our word. And Jesus says, let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Divorce is serious because it denies the vows, but then second, divorce is serious because it destroys the one flesh union. It destroys the one flesh union. John Murray, in his helpful book on divorce, writes, it is precisely here that divorce's wickedness becomes singularly apparent. It is the sundering by man of a union God has constituted. Divorce is the breaking of a seal which has been engraved by the very hand of God. Destroys the one-fleshed union. Third, divorce is serious because it defaces the picture marriage is supposed to be of Christ and the church. It defaces the picture the marriage is supposed to be of Christ and the church. Let me put it this way. James 4 says, James 4 says, You adulterous people, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He calls sin adultery, adulterous people. So let me ask you, have you ever been guilty of spiritual adultery? Have you ever for a season or you know, for a time gone after something you should not have gone after? Love something that God hates. Embrace something that God forbids. Have you ever been guilty of unfaithfulness to God? Answer. Yes. Now, let me ask you another question. Will Jesus ever divorce you? No. No. He is faithful to the end. He loves you to the end. He's faithful when you are unfaithful. He loves you even when you don't love Him back. And that relationship is the one marriage was designed to point to and illustrate. It pictures the relationship between Jesus and his church. But if if we're not in a grace or but if we're if we're in a grace based relationship with Jesus, he's gonna love us no matter what. How could we ever treat our relationship with our spouse like it's a works based relationship? I will if you will, but if you don't, I won't. I won't and I'm out of here. It's a defacing of the picture of marriage as it's supposed to point to Jesus and his church. And fourth, divorce is serious because it depreciates forgiveness. It depreciates forgiveness. It cheapens forgiveness when in fact it is the glory of a man to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19 verse 11. Forgiveness is our glory because we are made in the image of God and forgiveness is God's glory. It is the very heart of the gospel. And when we forgive others, we are following the example of Jesus Christ himself. We forgive because he first forgave us. I mean, isn't it interesting that right before Jesus' teaching on divorce in Matthew 19 is Jesus' teaching on forgiveness in Matthew 18. And in verse 21 through 35, what has our Lord just taught us? Not just forgiveness, but scandalous forgiveness. Unlimited forgiveness. Peter comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Then he goes on to share the parable that illustrates that immeasurable forgiveness that we have received from God and that we should therefore go and give to one another. It is immeasurable. And by the way, and by the way, it's exactly because we're all spiritual adulterers, but God forgives us, that even when there is adultery in a marriage, even when there is adultery in a marriage, there can still be forgiveness. There can still be forgiveness and reconciliation because we are already adulterers ourselves. It's incredibly challenging and the situations are are just you know heartbreaking and complex. But forgiveness is possible. And in most circumstances, every effort should be made to that end. Because that is the gospel. Fifth, divorce is serious because it harms the future. It harms the future. Humanly speaking, there's nothing more important for personal well-being, positive social behavior, and general success in life than to be raised by one's biological parents committed to each other in a stable marriage. Over the past 40 years, a vast body of research has demonstrated conclusively that children are deeply affected by the family structure and that married parents are best for kids, period. Children studies found children not living with both biological parents are roughly twice as likely to be poor, to have births themselves outside of marriage, to have behavior and psychological problems, and to not graduate from high school. Children from single-parent homes are most likely to experience health problems, accidents, injuries, and poisonings. And single parents are not all equal. Children of widowed parents do far better than children whose parents are divorced or cohabitate. Also, having family or close friends who are divorced actually increases the likelihood of you divorcing. As it turns out, divorce is contagious. Contagious. 
Presumably because you start to reason it out. You say, well, you know, it worked for them. Maybe it would work for us. And, and that's what children are raised under. All the research shows that children do best across dozens of categories when they are raised by a mom and a dad who love each other and stay together. We need to hear about these issues, about the seriousness of divorce, because listen, there could be someone here today who is on the very brink of it. And there might be some here today who daydream about it, would never pull the trigger, but man, they wish they could. Because in five years, you may be somewhere you never imagined to be in your marriage. And we need to hear Christ's words about the seriousness of divorce to act as a giant blinking stop sign that says there is no life this way. This is a cliff you're about to go over. In almost every instance, divorce is not the answer. And if you're here today and you need help with your marriage, you have got pastors here and you've got friends in this church. You've got strangers in this church who are willing to help you. We want to come alongside you. All you've got to do is ask. You have to want it bad enough that you're willing to come forward and ask. Now, all that being said, with our remaining time, I want to take a few minutes to cover a second topic Jesus addresses in our text, uh, another serious matter we, we, we have to attend to while we're here. And so point number two is the seriousness of sexual immorality. The seriousness of sexual immorality. If you'll look with me again at verse 9, Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. As we've been saying, Jesus permits divorce in cases of sexual immorality, but it raises the question, why? Why sexual immorality? Why why does sexual morality, uh, why is that so bad that it constitutes as possible grounds for divorce? The answer is, let me give you a bit of an extended answer here. The answer is because when someone is married, Sex is the ratification of their covenant. When someone is married, sex is the ratification of their covenant. It's the, it's the oath signing, if you will. So last week we looked at the biblical view of, of marriage as a covenant. It's a solemn oath, a solemn, and, and, and a solemn oath and bond between two parties, not based on I will if you will, but based on I will because I've set my love upon you and I am committed to you. Right? Covenants are, are, the, are the, this beautiful blend of love and commitment no matter what. A stunning blend of it. And in the Bible, most covenants were enacted with vows and then a sign for that covenant. Vows and then some kind of seal for it. So first there was the exchange of vows and there was, often there was a sign to seal it and to symbolize the covenant. So for instance, you have covenant of Noah, or Noah covenant with Noah, and the sign was the rainbow. And then there was the covenant with Abraham, and the sign was circumcision. And then you had the covenant with Moses, and the sign was the Sabbath. Someone said it out there. And then you had the new covenant and, with Jesus, and the sign is baptism, Colossians chapter 2, 11 and 12. And so marriage is similar to this. Marriage is similar to this. At your wedding... Uh, you covenanted, you exchanged vows between God and you know between God and these witnesses, as as I say when I marry people. Uh, but then you sign that covenant, you seal that covenant. You know, if I can say it, and what happens later that night? You seal the covenant, and what happens later that night when the two become one flesh? So here it is. We're we're at a wedding, <clears throat> like we're all at a wedding. Pretend we're at a wedding, right? Like I've got a couple up here. And uh, they exchange their vows. I lead them through exchanging their vows. And then after the, the exchange of the vows, uh, I get to say you know, to the man, you may kiss your bride, right? And uh, we're all kind of excited. And, and we think it's really cute if he's kind of sheepish, sheepish and gives, you know. 
but then there's some of these guys that are just like a little too eager and we're all kind of like, you're making me feel awkward, you know, um, you know, please stop. This is going on too long. You know, and you think it's awkward. I'm like right there with them. <laughs> so I'm kind of like, you know, real awkward. Have you ever wondered about why that's even a part of the ceremony? Why do we, why do we have, why do we have to watch them kiss? Why do I, why do I have to stand right there and watch them? Why do we have to watch them kiss? Well, the reason we watch them kiss is because we're not going to watch what they do later that night. That is actually, that's actually the historic reasoning for why there is a kiss in the ceremony. Because we're not going to watch what they're doing later that night. But they are promising with that kiss that they are going to be doing something later, that they're going to seal the covenant. And it's very interesting if you go in and look at Jewish history about how you know they would take them all to the home and you know and and wait outside and and that had a tradition church history too and you know I'm fine with the kiss like that's that's good enough for me I don't think we need to go back to all those things um, but marriage is a covenant here's what I'm trying to, to to lay out marriage is a covenant that includes the exchanging of vows and the signing of that covenant and sex is the sign it's the consummation and the sealing of the marriage and this is why sexual immorality in marriage is so serious because it's disgusting to introduce someone else into that covenant. To introduce somebody else's body into that seal. Sexual morality is so serious, it's so devastating. And so, I want to, here's what I want to do, I want to plead with you, I want to plead with you to fight sexual immorality way down in its seed form. At the level of lust and sexual desire. So it doesn't ever get close to that. I want to plead with you from the word of Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is Idolatry, Colossians 3.5. Put them to death. Kill your sexual sin. Whatever that looks like in your life right now, whatever that looks like, put it to death. But I do have, particularly in mind, pornography. I largely have pornography in view because the statistics on pornography are shocking. They're staggering. According to the ministry Covenant Eyes, 64% of Christian men... 64%. That means 6 out of the 10 men in this room. And 15% of Christian women say they watch porn, they look at porn at least once a month. 6 out of 10 of you men. And 15% of the women. Of young Christian adults, 18 to 24 years of age, 76% actively search for porn on a regular basis. So now we're, we're almost at 8 out of 10 young men in this church regularly looking at porn, according to the statistics. And teenagers, it's 57%. Because access is a little harder for them if we are doing our jobs. One more stat on this. Pornography use increases the marital infidelity rate by more than 300%. By more than 300%. So pornography is a problem. And it's addictive. And it's ubiquitous. And it will kill you. And it will kill your marriage. But pornography is an external problem. And Paul calls us to put to death what is earthly in us. The internal problem of our own lust. So it's, it's healing, it's, 
victory, it's freedom from the lust that we're after, not just pornography. We want to put to death, therefore, Paul says, what is earthly in you. So we have to put lust to death, okay? We have to put lust to death, but how do we do that? How, how do we fight that? How do we put lust and sexual desires that are sinful to death? You know, practically, exactly. How do we do it? What does it look like? Well, I'll give you two ways from Scripture to put lust to death. Two ways you can, you can fight lustful thoughts and desires. Stab it and starve it. Stab it and starve it. The first, stab it. Stab it. I have in mind here Romans 8.13. I'll give you a few passages here. Romans 8.13, Paul says, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you, By the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, the sinful deeds of the body, you'll live. So Spirit and death, and this correlates with Ephesians 6, because what's the one weapon we're given in spiritual warfare that can kill? The sword of the Spirit, right? Which is the Word of God, Paul says. So we don't kill people with the shield of faith, and we don't, we don't kill things, you know, the helmet of salvation. We stab it with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So take it all together. Colossians 3, 5, put it to death. Romans 8, 13, put it to death by the Spirit. Ephesians 6, 17, by the Spirit is the sword, which is the Word of God. By all this, I take it to mean the sword of spirit, which is the word of God. We need to stab our lust with it. And the word that kills our lust, the word that we use to stab our lust is a twofold word. It's a twofold word. It's a law that convicts, and it's the word of promise for better things. It's the word of law that convicts, and a promise, or the promises of better things. You have to store these up in your heart. So you have to have laws that convict. you got to have laws that convict, like Matthew 5.27. You have heard what it is said, Jesus says, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. you got to store up the law that brings conviction and stab your temptation to lust with that law. But then you also need to take promises promises to feed your faith a promise like psalm 1611 you make me know or you make known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore so do you get pleasure from sexual sin well God promises a better pleasure, a better pleasure in himself, a fullness of joy that he says will last forever. So one way you put lust to death is by the power of the promise of a superior pleasure that God holds out for you. And your faith has got to cling on to that because it ain't going to be your feelings. That's how you stab lust with the word of God. Conviction through law and give your faith promises to hold on to. But then second, the second way you put it to death is by starving it. Starving it to death. And I'm thinking here of Romans 13, 14. Paul writes, Make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision for it to gratify its desires. So this exhortation helps us to see one of our problems is, and this, this, this transcends, all this transcends just lust and pornography. You know, this is applies for everything, but I've got pornography and lust in my, in my aim. So this exhortation helps us see one of our problems is we make room and we create space in our hearts, in our minds for sinful desires to be awakened and indulged. We create, we make space for them to be awakened and indulged. That's why Paul says, make no provision for the flesh. Right? So we make space and time, though, for us to indulge sinful desires. So when a guy comes to me for help with lust, with help for help with one of these things... One of the things I try to do, try the beginning, is gauge how serious he is about fighting it. I try to gauge how serious he is about fighting it because there's a way for a guy to want purity, but not yet. That was something Augustine once prayed. He confessed later in life. Lord, give me purity, but not yet. 
Lord, give me purity, but not... Yeah, and so I'm trying to gauge if a guy is serious or not, because he's not going to change if he doesn't want to change. He's not going to change if he doesn't really want to change. And so challenging him to starve his temptation is one of the ways I get at this, to see how serious he is. So if he's struggling with pornography, primarily on his computer, then the new rule I throw out there is, you ought not to be allowed on your computer by yourself. It's, It's pretty simple, right? Just starve it. Just cut the computer out of your life, at least by yourself. Or, or if it's the phone, primarily through the phone, then you just need to get a dumb phone. got to do it. The computer, the phone, they're not really the problem, right? They're not really the problem. It's an internal problem. But they're feeding the problem. They're allowing, they're, they're giving him a place for the flesh to be indulged. So, cut him out. Like Jesus says, cut it off. Gouge it out. Cut it out so that you can have then a deeper internal fight on the level of desire and faith where change really happens. Now, if a guy pushes back and says, well, you know, well, <laughs> checking my email at a coffee shop every time or, or with my wife beside me, like that's, that's, a, that's a huge hassle. I've got a job. I, you know, I've got responsibility. I, or, you know, if, if, you know, if he's not, here it is, if he's not, if he's not actually willing to be inconvenienced in this way, then he's not actually willing to be inconvenienced for his holiness. His holiness isn't really valuable to him. Right? So, I mean, Scripture can say, can a man carry a fire next to his chest and not be burnt? Can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Proverbs 6.27 Well, I've met a lot of men who can think they can carry a brothel around in their pocket and not fall into sexual temptation. With little excuses about how inconvenient it would be. And you know, some men can. Some men can walk around with a, with a, with a brothel in their pocket and, and not be tempted. But you can't. Not yet. And some women can't. And until they can, they're going to have to deal with these external problems and be willing to cut them out of the, to starve their sin. They're going to have to make no provision for the flesh. Starve the lust out. So that you can really deal with those desires and unbelief in your heart. And sexual, sexual morality is so serious. And we need to be a church that takes it seriously deals with it, fights it, is honest about it with one another, brings it out into the light, and seeks the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, where we can be made new. So in conclusion, in conclusion, I mean, you know, biggest downer of a sermon I've ever preached, it feels like. The seriousness of divorce, the seriousness of sexual morality. Everyone's hit, everyone's touched, everyone's poked and prodded and convicted or pained. Here's where I want to land. Here's where I want to land. There is no sin that you can commit. There's no sin you can commit that, God, that Jesus can't forgive. You can go through the whole catalog of sin, including every sexual sin there is. You can make a long, long list, and there's nothing there. There's nothing in that list that Jesus cannot forgive, and he won't forgive readily. And listen, this includes the kind of debauched lifestyle of sinning without light. You know what that is, right? Like sinning without light. Like people who have grown up, maybe you, in an unbelieving home. You didn't know the Ten Commandments. You never really heard about Jesus. You just grew up and lived a debauched life. You went out and did all kinds of things. A a licentious life. You had no idea what you were doing. You're just living in the darkness and living it up. I mean, that was the situation of the Corinthians, right? That was what they were. Paul said, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Jesus forgives debauched sin committed in darkness, but he also forgives sin committed in great light. He also forgives sin committed in great light. By that I mean sin committed with the knowledge of exactly what you're doing. 
You were raised in a Christian home. You know exactly what you're doing when you're staying up late looking at that junk. You know exactly what you're doing. You know you are sinning. Or you've been a Christian for a long time and you've been married for a long time, but you've been flirting with that coworker. Or you have a marriage that's functionally a divorce, that's practically a divorce. It's just choked with all kinds of weeds and it's not a good marriage and you don't really enjoy it, but you're too proud to admit it and you're too proud to get help, but you're also too proud to end it because that's the only reason it's still going. And you know it. You know you're sinning. You don't need me to tell me you're, you don't need me to tell you your sin. You know you are. You know you've sinned against great light. But friend, Christ died to forgive you of that too. He died to forgive you of that. He died to remove the weight of guilt, a weight you cannot bear, by bearing that guilt for you unto the grave. He bore it to the grave, or he left it there, and then he rose again to new life. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what you need to receive for transformation. So whether you have sinned against great light or you're here today and you've never known the light, these are the words of Jesus Christ for you. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Trust Jesus. Come to Jesus. He will bear you up. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we do admit, God, as we're standing here, none of us stands under this sermon innocent. As we said earlier, Lord, as we all admit, as we all confess, we are all spiritual adulterers. We have all cheated on you. Lord, we've been unfaithful. That doesn't, it's not what sin feels like, but that's what sin is. And we repent. We confess our unfaithfulness, Lord, but we also confess your faithfulness to us. That that is all our hope. Your mercy is all our hope and everything we need. So we thank you for this word today, Lord, because we believe that through it you want to strengthen the marriages of this church. You want to safeguard them from the danger and the destruction of divorce. God, you want to pluck people out of the fire of lustful temptations and set them in a safe place, a place of pure light. So Lord, we pray that you would be doing that saving work in our midst today. Work in our hearts. Help us to put what is earthly in us to death. And Lord, I pray for our marriages, that Lord, those that are struggling, those that need the most help, would get it. And Lord, may this church be a place where marriages shine brightly, the light of Jesus Christ and His love for His church. We pray this in Your name, Jesus. Amen.